Good evening, everyone. This is uh, the Apologetics.com radio show where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. My name is Harry Edwards. I'm going to be the host uh, for tonight. And I have in studio with me Dr. Jacob Daniel. How are you doing? Very good, Harry. Good to be here. All right. Lenny Esposito to my left. How are you, Lenny? Doing great. Glad to, glad to get together again. Yes, I know. Uh, so uh, before we begin, though, I just want to make a little bit of an announcement. Uh, we did launch our certificate program, so I'm really excited and happy about that. And uh, if you go online, apologetics.com, you will see uh, a short description there. It's totally on the front page. You can't miss it. If you have any questions about it, uh, just write to us. Um, send us a, a note on, uh, on the site itself. Uh, we're happy about it. I think it's going to be a great resource for the church. You can do it on your own. It's self-paced. There aren't any prerequisites. Um, so I think any high schooler can do it. would appreciate it. Uh, we, it's geared toward uh, an adult learner. So uh, if you have an Internet-connected device, even a smartphone, you can totally do it. Um, even as we speak, the program gets uh, updated every once in a while. Like, for instance, the latest thing that I did, which I'm sure any new enrollees would have seen this, but uh, there's recommended reading as well. So every lesson, there's going to be a recommended reading. Um, So that's some valuable resource there. So, all right, that's it for announcements. And Harry, you have a website assigned for it, right? What's that? You have a website assigned for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, studyapologetics.com. Sure, you can do that. Studyapologetics.com. That's an admonition (laughs) to anyone listening, (laughs) a command, right? But uh, even on apologetics.com. But uh, whatever uh, helps you remember things better, you you can do that. Thanks, Jacob, for reminding me of that. Uh, thanks, uh, special shout-out to Jay Warner Wallace. Thanks, uh, you know, Jay, for doing that. That's huge. But, yeah, you know, we, we've been doing this for 22 years now at least. Uh, and p- part of the vision, uh, really, that we had a long time ago has res- resulted in this. We, uh, In my mind, I'm, I'm thinking the church ought to uh, get behind this. They they ought to do it. So if you are someone who wants to not only gain knowledge about why you believe what you believe, but gain the confidence so that you're able to be uh, a good ambassador, a confident speaker for Jesus, um, then, yeah, you're, you're going to want to check out the program. A lot of the instructors are taught by um, staff, current staff and former staff of apologetics.com, including Dr. Jacob uh, Daniel here. So um, do you remember your talks there? <laughs> I did one on uh, cultural relativism yes. and the other one on the resurrection That's right. yeah. of Christ. Yeah, yeah. So you'll see uh, Jacob in action there. <laughs> good stuff. Uh, the one thing that uh, I feel is a, a good value is beginning uh, the first quarter of next year, we're going to invite a scholar, an expert in their field to uh, be part of a Zoom, a live Zoom call, and we're going to invite all of our students. So that'll be first quarter. That's going to happen the second quarter, third, fourth, and so on and so forth. So that's what we're going to do. 
All right. So tonight we want to just jump in into what we're going to talk about because uh, it's something that we take for granted, but it's, it's good to bring to the forefront of our thinking, and that's reason. What what does reason, how does reason play into the art and science of apologetics? What good is it? I, I mean, like I said, it's something we take for granted. But um, can you guys uh, just recall some of the scriptural commands where God tells us to what now with all of our minds, to love him with all of our minds, <laughs> yeah. our hearts, souls? Um Again, that's something that we just take for granted, but we want to talk about the role that reason plays in the art and science of apologetics. And then the second part, we want to talk about, I guess, the method. Hence, the title of our show is Ethos and Logos, the starting points and starting postures of Christian apologetics. And we want to cover that. All right, gentlemen, um, reason... How how do you think reason, um, if naturalism is true, if scientism is true, which it it seems like our culture is so embedded in in those two things, in in naturalism, like all there is is what you can touch, feel, you know, just with our five senses. If it doesn't pass that test, then apparently it does not exist. So if naturalism is true, what what of reason? Uh, what do we make of reason? Yeah, so, well, there's a... And, and I want to make a, a little bit of a distinction between naturalism and materialism. Okay. Uh, materialism says that the material is all there is. Naturalism could hold to things that are immaterial, but usually they're, they're results of materialism, what they call epiphenomenalism. It's a 50-cent word, saying that if you have all of the pieces of a brain together, thinking will happen. Thinking isn't itself material process, but it's a result of material process. It's something beyond that. So, it, so Is I, it proper to say that even in naturalism, everything is reducible to yeah, materialism. Uh, yeah, there's materialistic. Yeah. Um, At some point. So full, yeah. fully caused materialistic. There's no, there's no um, causal power or entity outside of the material, even in naturalism, I would say, right. because you'd have to hold to non-material, supernatural type Right, e- like even emergent properties, let's yes. say. They'll say the mind might have arisen out of the uh, the brain, you know, let's right. say, the material and, brain. And in some cases, there won't be any distinction between what mind and brain is. Right, right. Yeah. So, so but, but by and large, uh, and you see this all the time, that when they even... Um, there was a, a, a case of you know parents abusing their kids out in Riverside. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. There's a documentary on it now. I read about it briefly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and, and it's funny when the news reports on these or any take any shooting or, or or tragedy of that nature, they'll all do the same thing. They'll start to interview neuroscientists. <laughs> Why would you think this would happen? And, well, and they would. And what do they lapse into? Brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. 
And they start talking about those kinds of things. And we start looking for explanations that are physical for choices and actions that are the result of mental processes. So in that regard, our, as you say, our culture is just steeped with this. This seems to be the place people go that on one hand, they will say that that your mental thoughts are an output based on certain aspects of physical properties in your brain, right? Your This memory lives here or, or your speech lives in this part of your brain. Uh, they would argue that. Others are even more crass and say, the reason you speak is because these neurons fire and that causes your mouth to move. And, and it's basically there's no th- real thinking going on. It, it, it has the illusion of thinking, but it's actually just physical processes yeah. that are like dominoes. Not only that, it's another. deterministic too. It yeah, becomes yeah. deterministic on that end of the spectrum. So there is a spectrum in this, but, it's, sure. but, but both – Hearts are very problematic for multiple reasons. So, Lenny, you've set this up already really well. So we want to really cover in the first half hour of our show tonight, we want to cover what Lewis uh, has outlined for us called the the four features of um, our minds, you know, or four features of rationality, let's say. So, again, if if, – Reason, if if we allow for the presence of reason, then naturalism slash materialism fails. Right. And vice versa. If naturalism slash materialism is true, rationality is nonsense. All right? So that's what we want to set up uh, tonight. And so the first—let's talk about this, because you were already hinting on this, Lenny. The first— feature of rationality Lewis would call intentionality. So again, uh, if naturalism is true, how in the world do we explain intentionality? Well, intentionality in a naturalistic world is simply the outcome of previous electrochemical reactions outside stimuli and uh, the way your brain happened to have developed over the course of your life. So it, in some sense, becomes, as you say, deterministic. There's no way that you can make any sense of it uh, other than it's going to be that way. Think of it this way. A popular part of you know fortune-telling is reading tea leaves, mm-hmm. right? If you were able to have very, very sophisticated equipment, knowing which way the the water in the cup is swirling, you could probably predict which way those tea leaves are going to (laughs) fall. But the problem is just because those tea leaves fell that way doesn't mean that they're actually telling you anything. They're just uh, an outgrowth of those physical properties of the weight, gravity, friction and water and things like that, right? So with our minds, though, we do have intentions. We have ideas about wanting to do things, even if we can't do things. A person in locked-in syndrome may want to raise his arm, can't do it because he has no physical ability to so do. Or those who have had an amputation and have phantom leg pain, they can kind of feel their leg, but it's not there, right? So... 
the pain they feel is real. It's real pain, but there's no nerves to sense that pain. So how is that? How do you explain the disconnect between those two things? Yeah, and I'll add this to that in terms of uh, human pursuit for knowledge and understanding would be limited. And why right. do I say so? Because if you are purely, if you're explaining interna- intentionality purely on the basis of materialism or material, you know, material causes, co- yeah. material yeah. causes. I think then you are limited to the world of asking the questions of what, but not why. Correct. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think human existence, uh, uh, human relationality, and the fact that we flourish are not merely on the basis of asking what kind of questions, but also why. Yeah, because let's go back to the tea leaves example. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our reasoning would be just like looking at those tea leaves and and – it would be no more true of us to say our our in reasons brought us these ideas than to say that these tea leaves did. It's just how the process worked yeah. itself out. If I b- may borrow this example from Dr. John Lennox uh, from Oxford University, he says that, say, if I invite you to my home and uh, I place a cake in front of you and I have like three friends in front of me who are uh, like, they, they, there's a physicist, biologist and chemist, you know, and ask them to explain the cake and they can right. all tell me, you know, just what it is made of, what's the dimension and what are the chemical uh, you know, um, mix of it and everything. But if I ask them, why did I make this cake? No one could tell me. Right. I mean, it's 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 the person who made it with an intention, right? And ex- that explains the cake in a special way, which is a good knowledge to have. Yes. That brings much more than knowing what about that cake. Yeah, you know, I think we miss that if we just limited by uh, pure materialistic yeah. terms. Yeah, that would not make sense yeah. in a purely materialistic world. Yeah, that that's good. In fact. Uh, Something just came up in my mind about uh, the whole criminal system would just uh, collapse, too. Can you imagine? Exactly, because you, yeah. you, you're just determined to do the things that you've done. Since yeah, they're, they're just matter in motion. It's ma- right. Yeah. It's, it, you're you just know. an unfortunate it, person whose brain chemistry happened to and past events happened to align in right. such a way that you want to be – you know, the next serial killer. So, so here's a mental uh, thought experiment. So philosophers love this, right, thought experiment. If intentionality did not exist, uh, you can't explain you plunging a knife into a person versus you holding the knife and the guy tripping on, on, on the, the knife and it, but the, the same the action is the same, same yeah. result, you know. Or they use the, the, the Smith and Jones analogy that, you know, Smith, um, there's the evil scientist who plants uh, an electrode in Smith's brain. And if he pushes a button, Smith picks up a gun and shoots Jones. Mm. Well, he puts Smith and Jones in the room together. They begin to have an argument. And before the scientist can push the button, Smith actually picks up the gun himself and shoots Jones. Is there a difference? Yeah. All right. Jones is going to die in either scenario, but there seems to be a difference of intent. That's right. That's because right. in the button pushing analogy, Smith had no intention. He was being controlled, but he chose to do it. So there's so there's a culpability That's right. aspect to that as well. That's right. That's right. In fact, again, in a court of law, right, intentionality is uh, heavily considered yeah. – uh, uh, in in the judgment, Alice the forethought, yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. And, and from a from a biblical standpoint, we need to also understand that intent d- does matter, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's how we differentiate between sin and crime. Uh, that's how we uh, judge situations in terms of right and wrong. Right? And, yeah. 
Yeah. All right. So that's good. That's the first uh, facet. Good gentlemen, we covered that. Uh, the second uh, facet of rationality that uh, Lewis would have us think about is the fact that things are either true or false. Yes, this is a, this is important, and yeah. and it doesn't. The outcome of the thing doesn't matter. So here's the example that I use all the time because in a naturalist counterexample. Uh, there would be those who would say, well, it's our evolutionary upbringing. It, you know, survival of the fittest means that we need to be able to make decisions in order to propagate the species better. That's, that's the argument. Okay, so here's a counterexample. Imagine that you are an individual who's overweight, uh, maybe has a family history of heart problems, things of that nature, and uh, it's likely that you will die. Now, you can have two beliefs. You can believe, A, well, maybe if I start running three miles a day uh, and uh, really getting my heart in shape, getting more exercise, you start to lose weight, uh, the chances are you'll live longer, and it's a good survival mechanism. So you have that belief, you act on that belief, and that's the production. Or you could believe that the reason your family dies so young is because the evil spirit tiger demon catches them. And what you have to do is you have to run three miles every day in order to escape the evil spirit tiger demon that no one can see. So you begin this way to make sure that the tiger demon doesn't chase you, and you run three miles a day, and guess what? The results are exactly the same. You live longer, and you don't die of the heart attack because the, the actions are the same. The outcome is the same. Only the belief is different. One of those beliefs is true. One is not true. In a survival of the fittest scenario, true beliefs don't matter at all. Outcomes, they're the only thing that matter. So truthness, true or falsity of the belief is completely irrelevant right. in a naturalistic view. Mm. And this is how that can be explained. Yeah. And yet we know that it does matter. It does matter. That's right. So therefore, naturalism is false. I mean, un yeah. it matters in the sense that people want us to believe that naturalism is true. So they're asking us to hold a belief to be true, but we're saying truth and falsity on your system doesn't matter. That's right. That's so it's right. almost self-defeating. Right. And I would like to actually look at uh, this very thing that you mentioned, uh, Lenny, in a reverse order. I think this can also lead us to a place of creating or um, acknowledging the reality as just being one and removing all kinds of distinctions, right? And basically that ultimate reality becomes impersonal as well because right. we ourselves have to take responsibility for whatever we deem to be true and false. And I think that can be very deterministic in one sense. And I think it connects a lot with the pantheistic worldview as well, where the ultimate reality becomes completely impersonal. And to explain what we consider to be right and wrong, we basically come up with or we invent God and goddesses mm. that we need to appease to to maintain that balance mm -hmm. uh, because the ultimate reality is, at the end, uh, impersonal and just one. Good. No, that's good. Uh, while you were saying that, Jacob, it made me realize the whole, uh, when Jesus said, um, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, uh, and the life. Yeah, so ultimately, truth is a person. Hmm. Um, right. Yeah, he is not, called the Logos, right? That's right, that's right, yeah. So uh, truth, yeah, exactly. So it, it's 
ultimately it, it has to be a person and it, it is a person. And it, to complete that, yeah. no one can come to Father except through Christ, right? right. right, uh, right. And that's very much true. We need to be seeing uh, the truth in the person of Jesus Christ to really understand and come yeah. in communion with God the Father. So it's interesting, right, the whole idea that C.S. Lewis poses. Now, it might be a stretch, but uh, the way I see it, I'm trying to be creative here, uh, maybe the whole truth value of something and the falsity of something is already a reduced version of values, meaning uh, we're not even talking about morality, but in its reduced form, it's either true or false. And I love how uh, Jesus says that he is truth. Um, that he is truth. Yeah, so that's, it's it's nice to think about. So ultimately, truth is a person. Um, all right, uh, that, that's the second facet of rationality. How about, uh, let's go to the third one. Uh, it's mental causation. What What is mental causation, and, and how do you distinguish that from the f- first two that we've mentioned already? Well, mental causation is something that is completely isolated from the external world in the sense that you can draw new conclusions based on nothing more than mental understandings. And so you can learn new things about the world that you didn't know before without any external um, reference or, or, or sens- input. sensory input. Yeah. 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 So, so for example, you know, the old adage... Um, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. What can we draw from that? The conclusion is Socrates is mortal. Or, or um, the Esposito household has one pet, and uh, the Esposito household will only have pets who are dogs. Now, what do you know about my house? How? Yeah. You it's know. not a cat. <laughs> you know, I have one pet, yeah, and yeah. it's a dog. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. right. And, and you didn't have to visit my house to do that. All of that happened right. internally. Yeah, yeah. So here is a new fact we know about the world. If those two premises are true, and they are, then you can know brand new things completely mentally. Yeah. How, how do you explain that in physical terms? Yeah. It makes no sense. This is why it is so, so much important as, as believers in Christ and those who hold scriptures to be uh, the word of God is that we, uh, reason alone is not the source of truth, but also revelation. And God reveals to us certain truth that we can actually put our trust on right. and believe in and act upon. So, so uh, this very... Thing, right? Just uh, reason as much as it is important and necessary, but we also believe in the fact that there is this revelation aspect of truth that we need to uh, believe in as well. Right. Well, I, we were just talking about this on our drive, uh, drive up here. Um, it, it's hard to, you know, a lot of this is high-level thinking just because we take it for granted. Not that it's it's beyond our reach, but it's just we take for granted. But Ultimately, the gap in our knowledge, I think, is what you can properly consider faith. We have enough knowledge, but it's faith that causes us to act. So let, let's say, again, back to uh, you know Jesus saying that he is the way, the truth, and the life. It has to be a person. Your, your, the, the truth value of anything, when, when you 
try to seek a justification for it. It has to be tied to a person. It's not just propositions because propositions don't save you ultimately. All right. I, I know we're coming up on a break uh, real quick, and we want to end the, the first half hour with, uh, like I mentioned, the four facets of rationality. Logic is the last one that Lewis would say. So it seems like uh, there are certain things. Uh, uh, the makeup of our minds has this logic built in. You know, It's inescapable, um, like the law of non-contradiction, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, uh, law of identity, Certain basic beliefs, and yeah. law of excluded middle. I mean, those are the yeah. pretty much the three uh, basic laws of logic. Where do those come from? I mean, or, again, or how how can they? How can we exist in a world that doesn't have them that we yeah. don't understand? They, uh, and there, I think there is a wrong perception when people think about, especially the Eastern world and the Western world. Mm, yes. they, they tend to assume that the Eastern world doesn't believe in b- b- logic or anything. But that's not the case. Logics are universal, right. regardless of what part of the world you go to, what culture you go to. We all follow these uh, certain logics by which we make judgment. Uh, and reason is that. Reason is making judgment by the process of logic. Yes. All right, so maybe somebody can point this out, but uh, let's say uh, you are someone from the East and, and, and they claim that they uh, deny all logic. What would you tell them? They say, they say logic is, that's do just you look, a Western... Do you bi- look both ways before you cross the street? <laughs> no, I will ask, by what logic? <laughs> right. By what logic do you deny right. logic? Well, right. You know? <laughs> not only that, they, they, they've already asserted uh, the, the law of identity because it's well, not this. Or, or, or you, so you're saying it's either the Eastern view or the Western, Western view. Right, right. It's, there, there is an either or there still. You can't escape. <laughs> You can't you escape cannot escape because you trying to escape it. You've applied logic because you, you are denying this and not that. Right, and and exactly what Lewis writes in his book on there. He says he says you are use, you're trying to undercut reason by inference, using logic to undercut reason. Yeah. And it was why even Thomas Nagel, famed philosopher atheist, wrote a book called uh, Mind and Cosmos, while uh, the neo Darwinistic you know explanation is almost certainly false and he argues that that it a new explanation is just necessary you can't you can't ground it in materialistic properties yeah do i hear the music already is it coming on yeah. wow all right well our first half hour is over so we're coming up on a station break and we will uh catch you on the other side the mission of apologetics.com is to challenge Why? believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. Hi, ladies. Welcome to Open My Eyes. I'm Lori Wilburn. In recent months, we have been tuning in to the wisdom of science. 
It's also true that many of us are relying on worldly voices to help us manage our trouble. In John 7, 37 and 38, Jesus said, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. When we face uncertainty and the vast questions that plague us, Jesus invites us to himself. We can read endless books and seek counsel from a host of individuals. But Jesus said, let him or her come to me and drink. Christian, whatever problems rage against our soul, God's Spirit is the ever-flowing, ever-living source that sustains us. We can flourish when the world is fainting. To learn more, visit my blog at corechurchla.org. This is John MacArthur with another edition of Portraits of Grace. Praise the Lord is a common expression today. Some see it as a catchy slogan, others commercialize it, still others reduce it to nothing more than PTL. But despite such attempts to trivialize it, praising the Lord remains the believer's expression of love and gratitude to God. And God desires and deserves your praise. That's why Hebrews 13.15 says, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Praise involves reciting God's attributes and works, giving Him honor and reverence for who He is and for what He has done for His people. May your praise follow that same pattern. This is John MacArthur looking forward to bringing you more Portraits of Grace. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. All right, welcome back to the uh, Apologetics.com radio show. My goodness, that music, if that doesn't keep you awake, I I don't know what will. Uh, It is like past midnight, way past my bedtime, but we are talking about the role of reason in the art and science of Christian apologetics. Uh, I think we've established, I think we've, you know, C.S. Lewis has done a good job of just uh, neutralizing um, naturalism. Again, if the presence of a mind exists, then naturalism is false. If naturalism is true, the mind does not exist. But we know that the mind exists. We know we have thoughts about things. We have intentionality. There's a loss of logic that naturalism can't explain. Things are either true or false. Why does that matter if naturalism is true, right? Those kinds of things. So um, we're thankful that uh, Christianity is based on, um, you know, reality. These things are true. Hmm. We experience it every day. All right, we want to get to more of, um, you know, how do we do this? How do we, uh, as Christians, how do we uh, engage properly uh, the seeker? Uh, Does it matter? Or do we just bowl them over with our eloquence and (laughs) our our tight logic and, you know, premise number one, you know, premise two, you know, that kind of thing. Is is that all it takes? In fact, uh, I was taking notes here. I, I had a question here for maybe those who are interested. For example, if you present a tight case for Christianity, does that alone automatically lead to salvation? Yeah. 
No, now, no. I, I have a I have an experience. I was uh, doing chat counseling at a crusade. So my job was to sit in the back room, and the people who were watching the stream would write in. And a gentleman wrote in, and, hi, how are you? And he goes, he said, I, I, I hear the message, I hear about Jesus, I want to believe, but I can't. Well, my first question, why can't you? Turns out he was a philosopher. He was a college professor mm-hmm. in philosophy. Oh, funny that you get me, you know, <laughs> as opposed to somebody else, the 60-year-old woman who's <laughs> sitting to my right. Um, but he says, you know, and I said, well, what's holding you back? And he starts art, put it, positing some of the problem of evil and things like that. And I said, well, that sounds like a very Humean argument. You're David Hume. Yeah. And we start having this discussion and here's the thing, the more I offered evidence and objections, which were, you know, very philosophically sound, the more I found he was resisting. Mm. And the and the the timbre of the conversation started changing. And it was right then the Holy Spirit kind of tapped me on the shoulder and says, "Do you know what you're doing right now? You're threatening 20 years of this guy's existence." He put his whole life into being a philosopher, and he thinks philosophy is what shows atheism to be true. And by questioning his philosophy, you're questioning basically who he is. And he's shutting you down because he just doesn't want to hear it. You need to change your tact. And I went, okay, got it. I said, wait a minute. You said you wanted to believe. Why do you want to believe? Yeah, yeah. And now we got into his feelings, his his desires, how he feels empty, whole different conversation. But you see, reason, and a, you would think a philosopher, would the reason would appeal to him, but it actually had the contrary effect because what was happening was I was challenging something that he saw as part of who he was intrinsically. And so I, I think that's a good example and for anyone who's witnessing to understand that when you go after someone you got to understand what you're asking them to do. If you're talking to a Mormon, you know, if they accept Jesus, that means that they're saying that their parents Mm. are going to hell, their grandparents are going to hell, they may be cut off, Mm. right? Uh, Muslims are, you might be disowned or worse from your family. It's a big risk. And and Lenny, you would agree with this too, right? I mean, uh, I speak in a lot of youth retreats and a lot of uh, young people who come to attend that those retreat, I mean, they come from Christian families, so they don't have much to lose in terms. Of, they'll gain more if they believe in Christ, sure, because their parents believe and they don't. But they they can't. But I've seen that time and again. Whenever I go, there's this one particular retreat I go uh, to and speak uh, every year. Uh, I've seen that um, there are those who would respond to the call right when they when, when they hear the Lord and immediately. But there are those who would. Wait for their experiential, you know, uh, 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 their experiences to actually align with their understanding. And that takes time. Mm-hmm. And I think God uses sometimes both to bring one into his kingdom, right? Uh, but there's one thing I, I believe in is that uh, it, it requires us to have intellectual humility, uh, but it has to derive from intellectual integrity, Yes, it's not outside of it. It's not that we are accommodating our understanding uh, according to the need of the individual all the time in all cases. 
there are there are times when we have to speak the truth and that truth works in their life they need that right right um, uh, so that's a portion we have to take other otherwise you know just we will uh, just create uh, we'll be engaging in creating bridges yeah right that's all we keep on doing you know engage yeah. engagement 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 but doesn't one doesn't come to a place of commitment uh, to the message of the so, gospel so yeah so and, and the example i use is you, you don't agree with an anorexic that she's fat <laughs> you, you you don't say you know are you crazy why are you th- not eating or why are you sticking your finger down your throat you know, you know that's that's the wrong tack but you don't then also say, well, yeah, you're fat, I can see it. You know, it, Both sides are wrong. Both at, so you have to find something, you know, what's, why is this happening? What, what's the real emotional issue that you're trying to cover? Why do you not feel loved or why do you feel uh, that you can't control anything other than your food or whatever? Mm. And with Christianity, that's true as well. You don't agree with the person's sin, but you also don't, you know, um, just dismiss it, talk down to it, and say, "Gee, are you stupid?" Well, yeah. you know, why do you keep doing that? Yeah. So again, gentlemen, we've been talking about the proper posture, like apologetics' favorite verse, right? First Peter three fifteen. What does it say? So be prepared. Well, set, set Christ, as, Christ. Um, yeah, as, as Lord in your hearts, but always be prepared for. Um, uh, for anyone an who, who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. And there's but that word reason. Do <laughs> it. Yeah, I know. There's a reason. Uh, but to do it with gentleness and respect, right? Um, so, Harry, Harry I, yeah. I always say, I mean, uh, do we wait for people to actually see that real hope in our lives that they can ask questions? That's a good point. Right? Yeah. I mean, that should be a starting point as well, that they, we have set apart Christ in our hearts and we have hope in our lives that people are able to see and ask us questions and then we provide the reason. I think there is a hint of plausibility structure there in terms yeah, of you for know, sure. wanting to or seeking after that hope that they are. Yeah. Well, remember, this is a good example, actually. A couple of days ago, uh, Jacob and I had the pleasure of hanging out with the Mangalwadis, right? So it was... This is Me- Dr. Vishal Mangalwadi. Dr. Yeah. Vishal Mangalwadi and uh, Ruth and uh, Preeta and Jacob and then Minerva and I. We were all uh, at a table uh, enjoying our meal. And um, out of the blue, the server, after we were done, approached Ruth and just asked her, there, there's something about your group that um, I, I can't just – Say it, but it, it it's like you guys were having fun. You guys had joy. I'm not sure she used the word joy, but but she noticed that something was different. Mm-hmm. And, and Ruth yeah. shared that with me, and uh, and she actually told her that we are Christians. That's right. Uh, yeah. Eventually, she said because we're Christians. I love it. And she asked her, "Are you a Christian?" And she said, "I'm not." That's right. That's yeah. right. But she she experienced something yeah. around that table right. that she was not able to otherwise. That's right. She couldn't even put a finger on it. All she knew was that it was a good thing. Yeah. And it was special. So that was, and that, that's all beneath the mask and everything. Yeah. I wish I could see her wow. face, but yeah, that was just amazing. It, it's interesting that even Christians understand uh, that the world was created by God. It was created good. It's damaged, mm-hmm. but there's still that hint of beauty. And creation under it. We can see the beauty of the world despite the tragedies or through the tragedies. 
And we should also, as Christians, be able to do that with people. We should be able to see the the beauty of the image of God in individuals despite their flaws. Now, that takes practice. I get it. But but, uh, I think beauty is an attractive feature that everyone longs for. And obviously, everyone longs for justice. I mean, it doesn't matter who you're talking about, you know. So there are certain aspects uh, that you can th- touch on people's yeah. cores right, that, right. that they long for, they desire, and they are especially lacking if they are not brothers yeah. or sisters in Christ. So after having the proper posture, a starting posture, uh, a- another thing that we need to keep in mind is the uh, starting points, or maybe some some of us might call them common ground, establishing common ground. Um, do we find this in Scripture, gentlemen? How did um, what did Paul do? What did the Apostle Paul do as he engaged uh, the crowd in apologetics? Well, Acts seventeen, he quotes yeah. at least two of the popular culture Greek poets. Hmm. First, he notices that hey, there's a God for everything around yeah. here. Yeah. There's even a God in case we missed the other. You know, to the God that we missed, right? To the yeah, unknown yeah. one. The, yeah, unknown one. The, 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 and he, notice he was observant, yes, because he cared about that. He he he. It, it did two things. It broke his heart, yeah. but he noted it. Yeah. And so he starts with a compliment, starts with this. He goes, I'm going to tell you the God that you're missing. Yeah. And so he at least got him an audience. And yeah. he knew he, he addresses Jews very differently in the synagogue than when he addresses Gentiles in the Areopagus. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very differently. And so he uses different tact in those regards. But he, he touches on the things that they find important in both aspects. Um, There is an important thing to notice here, and I think um, we can go either way on this, but um, I hold to a position where uh, on the question of contextualization um, in terms of bringing in gospel into a culture or to a people group or to an individual, I think we need to be focusing on the fact that are we contextualizing scripture into the culture or culture mm. into the scripture? Yes. That's an important question to ask. And whenever I'm reading uh, Acts 2 or Acts 17, I never see that any of the apostles basically uh, tried to accommodate gospel into the culture. Rather, they were focused on accommodating the, the good, good in the culture, that which is redeemable into the gospel. Uh, and I think that that's a good approach to have. In doing so, I think we will be faithful to the truth of the gospel, recognizing that it speaks to every heart, regardless of where we are, in the same manner, right? We may interpret things in different way, but it arrives at the same meaning Yeah, that is true to the scripture that is given to us. Yeah, no, that's good. I personally am a fan of Peter Berger, and um, he has written a lot on, on what I think are helpful in terms of our approach. So, the one thing he's famous for is the whole plausibility structure. So that's one way of uh, finding common ground with the person we're speaking to. Uh, gentlemen, what, what what is a plausibility structure? Every, um, um, if we talk in terms of like uh, our collective existence, everything that we find, every belief that we find to be plausible uh, within our culture, right? Um, there's a structure around it, which is like in, in the plausibility structure, where, whereby we're able to accept things as true and factual, uh, because it's it's uh, we have arrived at 
at it yeah. as being plausible. So it's like the th- threshold of belie- believability is uh, easier if the structure is there already. Like, what, one of the examples, Acts 2, right? Peter right. is preaching to the Jews there, yeah. and he is not trying to do what Paul did on Mars Hill. Among the Athenians, what he is doing is actually bringing in their own context that they already understand, right. and bring in the gospel into that culture. And in doing so, we see three thousand people come to Christ. Yeah, so because exactly. there was a plausibility structure there that made it easy for them to uh, look at the Messiah yeah. and to recognize what they have done. Right. So, so, so you have yeah. you have uh, people saying, "Is this you know?" They may have thought, "Is this magic? Is this demonic?" Right. What. What, what, who, these guys are drunk in the morning mm-hmm. talking like the, he says no 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 your prophet Joel mm-hmm. that's right. so he went to a place where and that's one of their core beliefs Another, in, in, in any plausibility structure you have ancillary beliefs that, that people may or may not hold or they can give up more easily but then there's a set of core beliefs uh, that people hold closely and they inform the rest of their understanding and, and so that's what Peter was doing he pulls on the, the very tacit of being Jewish is, is the scriptures, is the God of the Old Testament speaking to us as a peculiar people. And this is what that prophet was saying this peculiar people would experience. Yeah. Right. And, and Lenny, we, we're not saying that all plausibility structures that are prevalent in a, in a society are uh, um, re- re- all aspects of plausibility structures are redeemable. We're right. not even saying that. There are aspects no, of truth absolutely. that are redeemable, whereas we are called to actually baptize those yeah. plausibility structures with the truth of the gospel. Yeah. So uh, another way to look at it is, let's say, when it comes to supernatural things, how would you guys, and this might be obvious, right, just pointing out the obvious, but during the medieval period, uh, supernatural things had a better hearing yeah, with the crowd than, let's say, 21st century West. You know, so so the plausibility structure for miracles is there in the medieval period, but no longer here. So let, let's say even transcendence, the whole idea idea of a transcendent being, it made sense to the medievals, mm-hmm. but it does not make sense today. Um, and, and so, if we start by saying God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, well. That's falling on deaf ears because they understand the wonderful life thing. Yeah. But uh, what what's that G word you mentioned? God. I mean, I mean, yeah. I, I thought it, God does not exist. I thought I thought science proved that already, right? In fact, why don't you tell Lenny uh, some of your uh, projects and how uh, your project fits well in today's plausibility structure? Yeah. It's, so, so for example, with given your example. What I argue, what I tell people is, first of all, people understand inherently that there's a right and wrong. Everybody, if you know, and if they say there isn't, then, you know, take their wallet and watch them change their mind. (laughs) But I tell them, if there's a right and wrong, there has to be that idea of right and wrong has to come from something above humanity. Because if I go out in the, you know, on Main Street, and I say, well, I, I know that the speed limit says 40 miles an hour, but that's just too dangerous. I'm saying it's 30 miles an hour, and I'm going to give you all a ticket if you drive any faster than that. What are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to laugh in my face. Who are you, and why are you giving me a ticket? It's just your opinion that it's 30 miles an hour. But if that rule comes from something higher than you and me, then it's authoritative. Well, right and wrong for all of humanity need to be higher 
right? This is what the Geneva Convention said in the Nuremberg trials against Nazi Germany because the Nazi uh, defense was we were just following orders. And that's what a good soldier is supposed to do is to follow orders. But they said, no, there is a law above the law to which all men must follow, which means that you can't condemn Nazis if mankind is the ultimate arbiter of what's right and wrong. There has to be a law above man's law. So that's one way that you can say, what is this God nonsense? Oh, there's got to be something to which all men are accountable. Um, Connecting that with um, what Christ did, right? Right. this was not a moral issue, but more of in terms of his action. Uh, re- remember when he was questioned by what authority do you do yes. these things? He does not go to Abraham to actually appeal to the authority, which the Jewish Pharisees, I mean, they were doing right. that. Abraham is our father. That's where our authority comes from. But he says, before Abraham, I am. Yep. You know, going even beyond that. And he does that time and again. And he says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. I'll and, prove it. And he does that time and again, even on the issue of divorce when he was asked, right? Yes. He goes to the very first, you know, human beings and says, God created male and female. He's always going to that pre-fall, right. uh, you know, the system that God created and ordained. Yeah. So I'm curious, you guys, uh, in your own apologetics projects or talks, have you guys tried to sort of establish that plausibility structure in, in your writing, in your Absolutely. talks? Uh, g- give me an example. How, how have you done that? Well, for me, I, that, this is one of the reasons why I lever, leverage uh, you know, the idea of the superhero, the idea of the individual who, by all rights of his powers and his uh, abilities, should be ruler of the world, right? In most of history in every culture uh might makes right and the the powerful are the are the ones who should rightly rule in the west in christendom that's upside down it's it's not only does superman not become a general zod and rule the earth he's helping the the lowest of the low the old woman who can walk across this you know or whomever and he's getting sand kicked in his face as clark kent and taking derision and and why is he doing all of that for nothing? Why is Peter Parker, you know, not winning the wrestling matches and buying cars, but instead he's late to class and trying to deliver pizzas and things like that? Why isn't he using his powers to make money? Because we don't want that. That's We know in, in our culture, our belief system is that with great power comes great responsibility. Well, that's a, that's exactly what Jesus taught. <laughs> that matter of fact, that's a, that's a, abridgment of a of a quote from Christ. And so I can use that mm-hmm. as a starting point because nobody wants, you know, we have movies like Hancock where where the the superhero who's evil is a monster. <laughs> um, Isn't he a drunk? Yeah. <laughs> drunk. <laughs> in but, my engagement there's one thing that I've captured in my travel uh, in different places and living in different uh, uh, cultures uh, uh, around the world, uh, there's one thing common among all people is longing for intrinsic dignity. Mm. That's one thing. You know, you can actually go to any culture, any place, talk to people, and you would find this longing for dignity. And it's not an acquired nature of dignity, though they have created systems around it. But there is this in, there is inherent longing for something deeper, something valuable um, uh, that, that is not derived from somewhere but it's kind of given 
right? It's mm-hmm. uh, uh, so capturing that and offering uh, why as to uh, Christ offers the right foundation to even claim uh, or, or uh, argue for intrinsic dignity. And that has been a good uh, door for me to actually enter into and engage with people. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we all hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created, created equal. equal. There you go. So, so where do you get that idea from, too? Yes. Is, you know, upon, how can you base that on naturalism when people are inherently faster or stronger or smarter or prettier or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Again, what do you think is the goal of effective persuasion in apologetics? What, what, what are we trying to accomplish here? Is it uh, do we shoot for salvation right away? I mean, I remember Greg Kokel. He always reminds his listeners, his audience, to to say he actually says it right in, on stage. My goal is not to uh, convert anybody. He just wants to put a pebble in their shoe. Right? Basically, he's saying his goal is to. Because he thinks maybe that's the role of the pastor or the evangelist, but he feels he's called to make the case, and then they have to think about it. Because we know ultimately who does the saving, right? It's the Holy Spirit. I I always ask, uh, I mean, think about a Michelin star chef, you know, who is known for creating, uh, you know, good-tasting food— gastronomical experience that he or she can give you. But he or she presents that in a way that it looks ugly, in a way that you it's never appealing to your sight. It's never appealing to your heart to actually approach it and try it. I mean, gospel would be more like that from our perspective. I'm not saying that that's how it works. God can even use that. What I'm saying is that it's valuable. It's, it's beyond any value that you can give to uh, the message of the gospel. And when we present that to someone, if we do it in a way that we are preaching about it, like in uh, the goodness and truth and beauty about it, if we present it in such a manner, I think it is always appealing to people who are longing for it. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, I think I, I agree. I think um, our goal is to, is to um, love the individual, reach the person, remove the stones, for the fertile soil of the gospel, and if God calls you to continue on and sow the gospel, so you should do. Uh, that's that's the but the but the idea of apologetics is to is to remove barriers and get that out of the way so that people can be receptive to the gospel message. And you may be called to do both. Yeah. What uh, quick word can we say to anyone who feels that they're called to? academic work because the cost is high oh yes yes especially in the times in which we are living but it is a it's it's a it's one of the best (laughs) callings if i may say in our times as well uh to to speak into the lives of people you you who are subjecting themselves to you in terms of learning what a great privilege but i think one has to take that calling not just in terms of training and teaching, but also in terms of making disciples. Yes. And that's going a, a mile extra. Uh, yeah. it, it would require effort. It would require sacrifice, you know, taking that responsibility, sacrificial responsibility, and um, making disciples. And I think it's a great calling. Yeah. yeah. Charles Malick's uh, essay about the uh, the Christian uh, university professor is, is really uh, prescient here. And 
I can go on campus and speak to 30 students once a semester, okay, and that's a couple hours. The, the college professor has them three days a week for four years. He can speak to class after class after class, and especially in an environment where so many are um, negatively speaking against Christianity, a Christian student who sees one of their profs who's learned and is um, upholding the Christian understanding and uh, thought, uh, that goes a long way in those students' minds. And, you know, you can be have open hours and answer their questions. There's a lot that can happen there if you're missional in your, in your academic life. Yeah, the focus has to be not just on uh, providing information, but on formation. Yes. And that formation would involve huh, much more than just, you know, training and teaching. Well, Paul Gould, the author of the book we're uh, discussing, Cultural Apologetics, he says that he longs for the day when uh, professors could be called up and onto the stage in a church service and that they're prayed over like how we send out missionaries. Yeah. Um, that's a challenge for pastors, I think. So if you're listening, pastor... Some things to think about, right? So you've been listening to Apologetics.com Radio, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Our hope is that you have learned some aspect about the Christian worldview that strengthens your faith and make you want to learn more. So special thanks to my panel, Jacob, Lenny, and to our valiant engineer, Emma, for making sure we sound good and that we're actually on the air. Uh, uh, sp special thanks to our listeners. So until next time, good night.